I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks, move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! <laughs> Movies and Tea. Uh, this is our second episode of our Quentin Tarantino season, and tonight we are obviously looking at his now legendary cult favourite, uh, Pulp Fiction. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the one and only Miss Kim Love. Hello. And tonight, uh, as I said, we are talking about Pulp Fiction, I've, the film which really broke Tarantino out into the mainstream and has now become such it's gained such a place in pop culture i think that many people know about what about pulp fiction without perhaps even seeing the film it's become other oh, with the likes of stepford wives it's just sort of like the certain scenes are in this uh film that they've been so parodied or referenced or done to hell in every other sort of format uh that it's now got this sort of uh name recognition that you kind of know what it is before you've even seen it so Kim I mean with Pulp Fiction is this one you've seen before or is it a first time watch or I've definitely seen Pulp Fiction before um but I saw it a long time ago and I might have had like a rewatch a decent many years ago also so I don't like I remember a part of it and I don't remember a lot of it because I mean it all goes back to the fact that you know Tarantino is not really my favorite director and it's kind of like a love-hate relationship that I've had um but uh Pulp Fiction you know definitely merits a rewatch in in many ways I think Pulp Fiction's the film that I've seen the most uh times out of his whole filmography and I think it was also the one which in many ways really sort of cemented the obsession with Tarantino and his films. I think it was between this and Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, I think, because of its just intense tone um, and real sort of indie sort of limitations, I think was a little harder to get it get into, even though there are so many great moments within that film. But with Pulp Fiction, I think it was the one where everything finally sort of came, to, came together and Tarantino was, like, officially announced to... Um, announces this new exciting voice in cinema i mean he won the top prize at the calm film festival which that year was being headed up by his one of his favorite actors uh clint eastwood and tarantino is like thinks that like the good the bad the ugly is like one of his all-time favorite films and while he was um being given the the uh the the prize so there was a woman who at the at the back started um shouting scandal and protest in french and he responded by flipping her the <laughs> the middle finger on both hands so it really sort of uh only added to uh tarantino's reputation as the infant of terrible of uh independent cinema and certainly from Pulp Fiction, I mean, his career only sort of continued to skyrocket, which is really kind of interesting when you look back at Breath of Our Dogs, which was considered a flop in the States, but went over to Europe and the UK especially, and we just absolutely adored it, and it came back uh, to the States. It's like, wow, this movie's like big in in Europe. 
uh, whereas before it had been seen as this uh, little like art house movie. Uh, so it never really got the sort of traction it needed, and it just came back as this huge cult hit. You had people working into like their stand-up sets, and you would have like midnight showings with everyone turned up in like the suits and squirt guns. It was just a really uh, fun time, and with Pulp Fiction, it was sort of like taking what he'd done with Reservoir Dogs and just kicking it up to that next level. As uh, here we got to see the introduction of many of his regular players within the Tarantino cast, and it was the first film that uh, really got the distribution through Miramax obviously with Weinstein being a kind of father figure to Tarantino in many ways which would only make his um, outing as part of the Me Too movement uh, all the more sort of uh, throw him into kind of a, a tailspin which we would obviously cover later in the season but with uh, Pulp Fiction I mean we open really with another diner conversation I mean Reservoir Dogs opens with a diner and here Pulp Fiction opens with a diner and as we'll soon learn we're actually opening at the end of the film and if you look in the background you can actually see Vincent, uh, John Travolta's character go off to the bathroom as we obviously see him do at the end of the film so it's nice the fact that this, uh, this shot is still very much connected to the end of the film but it's here that we're Introduced to Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, um, who are a couple who are also running a ring of uh, robberies on diners, uh, rather than because, and it's this opening conversation, much like the Madonna, Madonna's Like a Virgin, what that's actually about. Uh, here we have two crooks talking about the world of um, of uh what i mean of holdups i guess is the uh is is the term really so i mean that opening conversation i mean <laughs> i mean the opening conversation is is very fun i think like it really sets the tone of the entire movie and i mean it's part of kind of why tarantino is is the way you know you have this uh I mean, Pulp Fiction is a really long movie. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I never realized it was that long. And you start off in this really high octane type of conversation where it's just kind of really quick dialogue and it's kind of a staple at this point as you watch more of these Tarantino movies, I think, of, of seeing this. And the conversation is, is interesting because they start talking about... Um, when you hold up the dangers of robbing and, and, and burglary pretty much with when you're talking about banks and liquor stores and then they talk about why robbing restaurants and diners are easier and coffee shops and, and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's this really fascinating conversation between these two and as, they, as you see them kind of um, follow through pretty much with, with what they <laughs> want to do and then they're just like, okay, yeah, let's do this now type of thing. Oh yeah, it's just absolutely fantastic. You've got this couple who could just have a conversation about anything. And they're just they're just like a couple that are in love, but they just happen to be also um stick up merchants at the same time. And the way that they interact back and forth, they make fun of uh, each other, especially with Amanda Plummer's um Honey Bunny. Um the fact that she just constantly like makes fun of uh, Tim Roth's pumpkin and just like his the way that he's getting so sort of fired up and giving this like this whole long uh, rant about you know about the art of uh, the stick up really about the saying that you know there's this guy who went and held up a bank using a phone he's like you try doing that in a 
in a liquor store, <laughs> you're more likely to end up having your head blown off. So it's just the and just like how she, you look at like how she like looks so lovingly at him as he, she's talking, and he's there just like banging coffee cups and yelling at the waiter and stuff. And you think, well, how are these two people sort of matched together? And then we get to the end scene, and it's sort of like that. <laughs> and if you motherfuckers move, and I execute every last motherfucking last one of you, and he's like, oh, now I see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we're obviously straight into Dick Dale's uh, Miss Lou, and it's sort of like Tarantino's just throwing down the gauntlet and just like announcing it's like, here we are. This is the movie you've come to see. Um, and it's, it does the, how we're able to just change just like on a on a dime. It's, whereas Red Red Dog sort of eases into it. The fact that we leave the diner and then we have the credits and then we're thrown into Tim off bloodied and sprawled out in the back of a car and screaming at uh, Harvey Kaito. At least with Pulp Fiction it doesn't really give you that sort of comfort. You're just sort of like straight away you're in the movie, you hit the ground and you're running. You're just going straight with it and then I love how the soundtrack as well in the opening it changed from Miss Loom. We hear like the stereo speaking and it's like oh we're into our next story which is obviously about uh Vincent and Jules, the two hitmen who are uh, being sent to retrieve the briefcase, which I think is now probably like one of the most parodied scenes in pop culture. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about Pulp Fiction, I think all the characters are really the stars of the show, and that definitely has to go to you know um, the the John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson being in this one, where you have and the whole how it all started with, you know, what's in the suitcase and you know, the briefcase. And no one knows what's in the briefcase ever, but you just kind of, you just kind of follow this briefcase around yeah. <laughs> and it kind of becomes a staple of your scenes, which pulls all these characters together um, in the different stories that we end up seeing and the characters and whatnot. And in many ways, I can see why Pulp Fiction is more regarded than Reservoir Dogs for me. I, I think just by the length alone, I kind of think Reservoir Dogs is a bit stronger for me and a watch that I would definitely go back, like something I would watch again. Whereas Pulp Fiction, it's a different type of um, story. To me, everybody feels so comic. Like it's it's almost like I'm watching a comic strip. Um, the whole story and it's just like a fragmented comic strip. So you're jumping from one scene and then the next scene and it's all in chapters. It almost feels like it's in chapters. So it's it follows this path which is all scrambled but when you get to um, a turning point you kind of see where okay well okay now we know that this scene is definitely supposed to like now we know that the storyline is definite, definitely fragmented. Yeah, and I mean, with both this and Pulp Fiction, where the the storyline it's it's non, you know, traditional sort of storyline, and yet when we look at books, we often have books which start off in the middle and then go back to the start, yeah. and it's no big deal, and it's sort of like, well, why can't we do that with films? And this is what Tarantino basically says um, with these two films. Both he just tells in this real non traditional sort of storyline. Then when we go back and forth through the uh through the for the plot line. So we start with our first story about uh, them going to get this uh, briefcase and when we eventually we come back to the end of that story, um in the in the final sort of act and it becomes this new slant that we're now looking at these characters from. 
um, with the story of the Gold Watch obviously being inserted in between that as well as um, the boss um, asking Vincent to take his wife um, out to to dinner because he's out of town so uh, he wants him to take her out out to dinner so that she didn't get bored but at the same time we've been built up to, we've been built up in this sort of like first story where we've got these two two gangsters but again they're not talking about gangster things same as we saw with Reservoir Dogs yeah. they're just talking about general day-to-day observations in particular the um, Royale with Cheese discussion which really comes out of the fact that with the success of Reservoir Dogs Tarantino had gone off onto the European festival circuit he'd took some time out in Amsterdam to write Pulp Fiction and it really now feels that he's coming back with a more world view. He's like picked up all these sort of like European idiosyncrasies uh, that he now works in as these like nerdy little observations. But obviously in the hands of Tarantino, they're just like witty, quotable dialogue now. I mean, I think we all know what a, <laughs> what a quote panel with cheese is called in France now, don't we? So <laughs> we also know what, what uh, Hunger Games is known as in France as well. Ballet Royale with cheese (laughs) The chemistry between John Travolta and Samuel Jackson I mean this is a real revival Sort of career piece For for John Travolta Whose career hadn't really been doing a lot For many years at this point But he's had his career like Just given a complete shot in the arm By being in this film And he as I said he's just like Comes back and he's like This hip guy which I have to say he's not managed to reattain since. But played off against Samuel Jackson, just the way these two are talking, the fact that they're talking about the fact that their boss has potentially thrown um thrown some guy out of a window because he gave his gave his wife a foot massage. Which is real great foreshadowing the fact that uh, Vincent has to take her on a on a uh, dinner date. The fact is, all like, you don't want to, like what happens if you uh, don't ple- if um, you don't make the boss happy. It might also be happening to you. And these little scraps as well, they're taken from other other bits of uh, screenplays that he'd done previously. It was in another script that he'd um, done some script doctoring for that an uncomfortable foot massage was brought up but it was never actually used um, and that's why it ended up being worked into this screenplay the same way that we see Inchin Powder being mistaken for cocaine in his first film My Best Friend's Birthday is uh, reworked into um, heroin being mistaken for cocaine in, uh, in in the dinner date story Right, but um, obviously with this with this sort of bag collection I mean do you think this scene even has the same sort of power now? I mean, now that we've seen it done so many different ways and parodied in so many ways, especially. I don't think it's comparable, right? I, I Because it's it's kind of OG. You have this... this uh, and plus, you have the... No one can really replace Samuel L. Jackson in <laughs> any type of exchange. Um, and I think that goes for a lot of the conversations here. Uh, I think it, it's when you think about it, when I at least when I look at it, Tarantino is really a master when it comes to these script writing things and these dialogues, where I think a lot of directors that we've looked at is more about atmosphere and grabbing that, that a different type of visual element. 
Tarantino is is you know, he's not just this for me at least. I've always known him as this like oh blood squirting, exaggerated <laughs> violence, um, over the top violence type of person. But as I'm looking through you know the first two movies that we've gone through right now, Pulp Fiction especially, you really with the dialogue that he has, it's so on point. And this dialogue the whole time never seems to be really about the situation. <laughs> it's always yeah. this really, um, you know, beating around the bush type of conversation <laughs> even, um, especially when they're in the, the place and they're encountering these people who, when they're going to retrieve the briefcase and you just have this conversation of you know just people going around and just going around talking about oh you know who this uh, what does what's the what does Mr. Wallace look like blah 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 you know and you keep going <laughs> on and it just goes on this it's just it just goes you 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 can't replace it mostly because you know Samuel L. Jackson is such a fantastic actor and when you have that close up of his face and his expression and oh, yeah. it just feels so intense right. The conversation itself doesn't feel um, as intense when it starts, but as he's going further down, you build up to that moment uh, where he's just—you you, just—you're just waiting for him to shoot this guy. You're just—it's just, gonna happen now. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen now. And then you just keep waiting and waiting, and it doesn't really. And then when it does, it kind of shocks you because you've already built that tension up to a certain level, right? Definitely so, and we turn to it with um, Samuel Jackson's performance in that particular scene. He just takes us on such a ride. I mean, when he's introduced, he's just like there. He's just like he's like killing them with kindness. Um, he's just completely non-threatening. He just goes in. He's like spends more time talking about what they're eating, and it's sort of like, oh, you're eating cheeseburgers, and we have the introduction of Big Kahuna Burger, which is one of Tarantino's fake brands that he has, along with Red Apple Cigarettes, that appear throughout his films, and this, the, again, he has that com whole conversation where he's sort of like, you know, how he can't have cheeseburgers anymore, because his girlfriend's vegetarian, and by proxy, he's also vegetarian, and he's just there eating this guy's <laughs> his uh, breakfast drinks his soda and when he drinks that soda you just like you just waiting for it to see if he blinks and he doesn't he just fix him with a transfixed stare and any other sort of film we look at where you're looking at characters trying to intimidate another especially in these sort of gangster ones they'll be like you know effing and blind and there'll be like this real threat of violence but with the way Vincent is carrying himself in sorry um Jules is um, carrying himself in the in the in the room. He's still completely in control, and it's really once he there's a point where um, one of the guys tries to get a little too uh, overly familiar, and he just like shuts him down straight away. He's like, "No, your ass ain't talking your way out of this one." <laughs> and then, um, as you said already, he goes into the whole uh, "What does Marcellus Wallace look like?" speech and before we obviously build into the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, the path of the righteous man is bisect on both sides by the tyrannies of evil men. Um which I know people when this film came out there was people there who just like read the Bible trying to find the quote because <laughs> they couldn't remember the exact number so they were like flicking through Bibles trying to find the quote. Um but even this like throw won't like throwaway catchphrase comes back at the end of like Jules like re-examines it and we have some deeper meaning there is no wasted dialogue there's no filler in this it's a, such a tight script that 
Tarantino is working with in this film and even when we have the approach to the room it's the only time they actually talk about doing anything remotely gangster like it's when we have the trunk shot and they're like oh how many guys are up there and he's like three or four you know maybe five or six it's like we should have fucking shotguns for this um and that's the only time the rest of the time it's like just back to you know this foot massage that uh this guy gave Marseille's wife his wife that he apparently took gr- such great offence to. Um, and then we obviously end in this in this moment of violence with the flashes of light. I mean, do you do you even like care what's in the briefcase? Not really. I, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's the thing. I don't think the movie was actually about that, right? It's 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 just uh it's just a way to give all these kind of bring all these characters together, um as they move from one location to the next and and obviously it it, it does show a change in time when you kind of it it's kind of jumps between scenes in that sense because you know after this one we get into this get into the bar or club or whatever and then you see these two guys walk in in these <laughs> in these uh, hilarious t-shirt and shorts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, get, I forgot that they're um, we get the very final shot of that story at the end in that middle portion, don't we? So yeah. Um, and then you're just thinking, well, what, what, when did they do that? Is it because you know of the of the shot that <laughs> because of all the shooting that went down at the. At the in that one, right? Because at this point, you still don't know that the movie is um, is kind of a a jumbled kind of storyline. It's yeah, only when so you get sequence. later on that you 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 notice where this is coming from. Definitely so. I mean, obviously, the briefcase is a reference to Kiss Me Deadly, which also had its own mysterious briefcase. Um, that one containing plutonium. But it, um, same as uh, Tarantino's briefcase, you just saw the characters open it and this light emitting. We also saw it in Repo Man with the uh, Camaro with the glowing trunk that caused people just to be reduced to smoking boots. Um, so definitely we've had like mysterious objects of of desire um, in other films before. I mean, Moaning again has a box that everybody's so keen to get hold of, but nobody ever finds out what's in it. So it's just I understand the uh, the MacGuffin, and it's just funny just seeing like how many people just like spend years like arguing over what it is, whether it's like gold or drugs or Marcellus Wallace's soul, because we obviously when we're introduced to him, we see him from behind, and I think it's uh, when you've got someone like Ving Rhymes who's just a big stocky guy and bold, and you see him from behind with this little plaster on the back of his neck, and it's just the fan theories just love to go wild with it, so. But yeah, I mean, obviously from there we go into our second story, The Gold Watch, uh, where we're obviously introduced to Marcellus Wallace talking to Butch here, played by Bruce Willis, another career revival moment there. And while it's going on, we've got Al Green's Let's Let's Stay Together, which just provides this real sort of hypnotic tone as he's outlining this plan of how Butch is going to take this dive in this prize fight, which uh, obviously he doesn't as we find out later, as he um, accidentally kills the other boxer and uh, finds himself on the run because Marcellus Wallace is going to send his hitmen after him. And uh, he's got to retrieve a gold watch that his girlfriend uh, failed to pick up at their apartment. So <laughs> That girlfriend, though. You know what I found? 
she's um I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm on the fence on how I feel about her right now. <laughs> okay. I'm on the fence. Like there are moments like when she when she's just um having those really innocent moments that you almost feel like she's so protected and so sweet, I guess. Okay. But at the same time, she could be really annoying because it feels like, oh, suddenly she, it's like, suddenly he yells at her and then she, she starts bawling her eyes out or something. And so these like huge emotional changes, which is, which feels so ridiculous at times, right? Because I don't know how long she's been with this, this, this butch fellow, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, you should know his temper at that point because at the same time, he's. He's like Butch is a character, which is also Bruce Willis does a really good job at having that sudden change in emotion as well, where he just gets really angry and 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 then suddenly he'll be like, okay, no, 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 it it's my fault. I should have done this. I should have been clear about <laughs> how important this watch was to me. And then yeah, he'll and then you move to the next scene as he's going and he's driving away and he's just like, ah, I'm swearing and all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, because I love the fact that when it comes to, like, outlining the importance of the watch, rather than having Butch tell us about the importance of this watch, he has this flashback to um, to himself watching TV as a, as a child. Um, I think he's watching Cargo Landing, some awfully cheap show. And we, it, the shot of uh, the child sitting in front of the TV, um, Steve Buscemi highlighted and said, that's just young Quentin. Right there, and I mean, Quentin himself admits he was a being an only child. He spent a great deal of time just watching TV and movies and by himself, and that that was like his his friend. So it makes a uh, no surprise really that we see that the young Butch there are uh, doing the same thing, and we get the wonderful appearance by Christopher Walken, which I think a lot of people forget is in this movie. Uh, but yeah, he tells the history of this this go watch. That uh, belonged to his father, had been passed, passed uh, down the family line, and his father had been killed in Vietnam, had passed it on to Chris Walken's uh, character to smuggle back in his ass. So you really hope he washed it first, <laughs> and now he's passed it back on to to Butch, so that um, so that he can have his have his namesake watch this. That uh, provided him um, hit, been with his, you know, these father figures throughout uh, for for several generations now, and it obviously holds his great sentimentality to uh, to Butch so much the fact that he's willing to risk his life to go across town to retrieve it. But even before this, I mean, we have have him escaping from the scene of his uh, his crime, so to speak, when when he's uh, in the back of uh, the taxi with the very exotic cab driver. Uh, where they're talking about about names, and he's like, you know, <laughs> I'm American. American names don't mean shit. I was surprised nothing happened with the cab driver. Because at he, this point, with so much stuff was happening, right? <laughs> she's just so she's so uh, surprisingly flirty. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Um, and the fact is, she just like you know, she just like everything's in like such a seductive tone, which I think's a lot to do with accents as well. Um. But yeah, there's just something about that. I constantly go back to that um, 
that cab scene where she's they're just having a conversation about um, names. I mean, she's played by Angela Jones, who is actually an American actress, despite the accent. And she was in um, Curdled, which was in 91, which was released on uh, Tarantino's Rolling Thunder Pictures. So it's surprising she didn't actually appear more because she's got such a air of glamour to her. I was really surprised she didn't really appear in more. So. Okay. I completely... I, yeah, now that you talk about it, I, I, I didn't really pay too much attention to, to that scene. So it was... I guess I guess you're right. I mean, I did expect so. I was kind of expecting in the back of my mind that something would happen, but at the same time, I think it really crafts um, Butch's character because it doesn't happen that he's really this simple-minded type of person. I guess. Yeah. He's very kind of one-track minded. He's thinking about at one point, you know, just escaping and escaping and escaping, and then. And then when something is more important than the current plan, like getting back to watch, that's his main thing. So he'll go straight for it. Oh, yeah. He's I mean, when he obviously like meets up with his girlfriend in the motel, I mean, he's so sure that his plan has worked. Everything's going according to plan. The fact that he's going to hide out in the hotel room for the night, engage in cunnilingus with his girlfriend and go for breakfast. And it's like only then he dawns him that the one thing that he needed wasn't there. Um, which obviously puts him on this this perilous cross cross town journey, where he's going to not only have to deal with a a hitman in his bathroom, uh, the now ill fated uh, Vincent, who I um yeah I I just love the fact that his whole death is sort of uh. It's all set up. I mean, he comes into his apartment. He finds the machine gun on the counter. So obviously, Vincent's using his his bathroom, and he he's making himself like uh, pop tarts. And the fact that the pop tarts coming out the toaster like time perfectly with Vincent coming out of the bathroom. So <laughs> I, you know, I just find it hilarious because every single scene it seems like there's some kind of bathroom moment. <laughs> there's a lot of bathroom play in this. <laughs> there is a lot of bathroom moments, and a lot of it is John Travolta in a bathroom. So <laughs> it's just really funny when you're thinking about it. And, and it just makes sense for him to be dying in the bathroom because he spent so much time in there. Yeah. Um, and things, and then he's like, I mean, he's so sure. He's like, he survived the hitman. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. He's there, sing along to start the bros flowers on the wall, you know. And he's just there and of course who does he see crossing the road but Marcellus Wallace with the great what the fuck <laughs> moment <laughs> and this this obviously leads to the two then having a cross town brawl very similar to uh, the quiet man in many ways um, and we get our, our uh, trademark um, comedian cameo with Kathy Griffin as uh, the bystander who's telling Marcellus Wallace that she's going to more than happy to be a witness for him but yeah, we obviously then stumble into uh, into the into the gun shop, which leads us into a whole other heap of trouble for for our pair, as they find themselves soon chained up in the uh, the basement with the gimp and the corrupt cop with evil intentions. There's something about the gimp scene that just still still amuses me now. I don't know what it is. It makes no sense. It's like why have, why have we got this whole dungeon set up with some guy in a box? That we're going to wheel out for this, for this spontaneous, uh, oh, 
sodomizing session that uh, that we're going to have. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, no. <laughs> mm. uh, interestingly, though, that scene was originally going to be soundtracked to um, My Corona, but the band, um, one of the lead singers, had become a born-again Christian and really kind of frowned on the idea of their song being screwed up by Tarantino because he'd seen what happened to Steeler's Wheel. Uh, stuck in the middle with um, Reservoir Dogs. I don't think he was too keen for his song to be screwed up with a sodomization scene. So, obviously, Butch manages to escape the fact that he has this honourable moment um, where he goes back from Marseille's, but before then we see him, like, going through the weapons. And when you look at it, he's like, all the weapons, like, different different film characters like he's there with like the chainsaw is he gonna be like Leatherface and then <laughs> it's like finally gets to, like the samurai sword it's like you know this the weapon of uh honor and it's uh he's gonna be um Hanzo or um he's gonna be like the lone wolf and the lone wolf and come series and it, even when he like does the attacks it's shot completely like a, a pop samurai movie just the way that um uh, we've got the when the guy gets slashed across the uh, front, he's all like the eye with the hands up in the air. It's very uh, pop samurai, and don't even like showed them like um, scenes from like um, Shadow Warriors with um, uh, Sonny Chiba just saying like you know this is how these uh, ha- this is how we want this to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the scene itself, in there's another fun parody as well. If you uh, watch All American Girl with Margaret uh, Chow, um, they did a whole episode with her then boyfriend Tarantino, where they just basically parody Pulp Fiction and they redid the weapon choosing scene with the uh, Asian grandma and she's like going for all the different weapons and in the end the samurai sword is replaced with a head strummer. <laughs> That'll be interesting to look up. So, uh, yeah, you can find the whole of um, All American Girl on um, YouTube. So, it's kind of weird just seeing, like, Margaret Cho and her ex-boyfriend there, just, like, <laughs> seeing how many references to Pulp Fiction they can cram into one episode, so. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bruce's, you know, Butch's struggle, though, just the way it escalates. I mean, how did this sort of play for yourself, Kim? I mean, obviously, it's a... Uh, story that only gets more ludicrous and it starts off so simple just like one guy wanting to get his watch back yeah but isn't that how it always ends up right (laughs) these type of stories are always based on this one kind of ridiculous story and you chase after something and everything goes wrong um pretty much murphy's law happens and you're just you just watch this guy (laughs) he all he wants is one thing and then you're just kind of thinking about um, about just just how he's gonna get out of all of this, right? Yeah, because you know, I it's I don't know what to say. I mean, it it almost feels like I, I honestly don't really have much of um I don't really have much. I think that the Butch story is really random. Yeah. Um, it's the less it's the least immersion that I feel. Oh yeah, definitely. So I so it's yeah, because it it, it seems to really come out of nowhere, um, and it but it is really good filler in kind of setting that storyline, uh, of pulling together the storyline for Jules and Vincent's story. Um, so it for me it has that kind of point, but at the same time it also brings you finally get to see uh, Marcellus Wallace uh, because he uh, encounters him. 
And that scene is definitely very hilarious. It turns as it gets really just ridiculous um, when, you know, it's like he tries to hit him and then the car goes somewhere else and then he has to, and then he's scrambling out and this whole thing happens type of deal. Oh, and when he's, uh, he even like uses Moses's like little um, pep talk against him and he's like punching him in the face. He's like, you feel that boy? That's pride yeah. fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you can it just like it just like how it like brings it back because obviously you think that you don't know what Butch is thinking the whole time that Marcellus Worst is outlying the plan to him and then you just realise the whole time that he just thought Marcellus Worst was kind of an ass <laughs> um, and he actually had no respect for him at all and he was always going to do kind of do his own thing yeah because his, his plan was to escape the whole time he wanted to leave this and just go go live at large with with his girl you know type of thing yeah and and that was his plan the whole time so he he was okay with it because in his mind you kind of have that moment when he's having that flashback whether whether it was because of um it, it was because of that that he didn't that that you know he kind of ran ran off from from the fight but in reality, uh, I wonder if it was because, you know, we have that flashback and then he wakes up right before the fight and then we see that he leaves. So I wonder if there was an actual change of heart. But then when he goes to the motel and he sees his girlfriend, that's when you know that, OK, well, this was his plan the entire time. It had nothing yeah. to do with it might have had something to do with his, his dad and pride and all that stuff about um, that, about the whole conversation that you know, he remembers from getting that watch that whole scene kind of links together and that I think that's the most important I think that it, it's more of an entertainment level and kind of something that kind of pulls the story together and introduces a little kind of kind of like a little bit of a I don't know what you call it it's like a glue to the story yeah but if you say like oh am I really I think Bruce Willis does a great job but oh yeah is definitely it, so. it, it's, does his story really give me a lot of wow moments I mean honestly <laughs> I don't remember a part of it, um, but if you're talking about you know like uh, the other definitely memorable moments is is kind of when we have uh, more of uh, the conversation say in the diner in the Jackrabbit Slim with uh, Mia and um, Vincent. I th- I actually think that conversation was really entertaining. Yeah, because I've unfortunately me screwing up the timeline for this film. We've completely skipped over the the dinner date, which we'll come to in a moment. But I think it's when it came to the Butcher storyline that it first like dawned on me. It's like, oh, this is completely out of sequence, because it kind of yeah. comes out of nowhere. This this uh, this random story. It's like, well, what what the hell are you doing here? This is not the character we've been following because up until this point, we've like had Vincent and Jules, and then we obviously follow Vincent as he goes on the date with uh, with um, Mia. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, those things all go together, and then randomly it's like, now we're following this box, and it's like, what's this going to do with anything? And I know the first time I saw it just like, completely threw me off. Um, and but the you know, the, yeah, but the thing, though, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I mean, the thing the thing is that um, the, the like, Butch's story is what helps you realize that the story is kind of fragmented because first we see him in the bar and then after that we see him and then we see him afterwards in in getting ready for the fight right and then 
And then all of this kind of links together after. I can't remember if it was this scene or the one where, oh, I think it was the one that we see the guy in the bathroom. <laughs> we see the guy in the bathroom um, in the, um, where they're trying to get back the briefcase. And then that's when you realize that the scene has, is at the whole story. Um, it's funny you obviously mentioned about the bathroom though because I mean it's only where we're in the conversation realize how many bathroom shots there are in this movie we obviously have Vincent on the bathroom we have the guy in the bathroom um, we have Vincent in the bathroom again <laughs> yes he's in, in the, the bathroom, bathroom twice isn't he he's, uh, <laughs> has a lot of fiber um, and we also see Mia in the bathroom as well yes. at uh, Jack Rabbit Slim so quite a lot of bathroom shots and I suppose in the later films he's just replaced with feet shots so uh well i mean we had a feet shot in this one too right as an introduction oh, that's right. to Mia. We do, yeah. don't we um yeah yeah our introduction our introduction to mia was was her feet <laughs> and then and then we see her in the car <laughs> that's the key thing um for tarantino that, that's like most uh other directors they would focus on eyes or lips or bosom or something then uh no with him is feet that's his uh that's his bag as I think it's been pretty much well documented at this point. So let's go back because I screwed it up slightly <laughs> on the timeline <laughs> um, to Vincent and Mia's dinner date. And for myself, I mean, this is my favorite story of the, of, um, of, of the four really, isn't it? Oh, two, yeah. Four. <laughs> to <laughs> myself um i think it's up there with um the the final sort of story where we uh get to meet tarantino's um a wonderful cameo in this uh this film uh but um yeah the this whole whole uh story i mean it it opens with um vincent going to buy heroin off um Lance, who's his uh, drug dealer, and uh, we get more talk of Amsterdam, because obviously with Tarantino hanging out in Amsterdam, he's got a lot to say about Amsterdam. So, <laughs> um, and at the same, he's you know he talks about the fact he he gets he's had his car in storage all this time and he takes it out and someone's gone and keyed it, and I mean Lance himself is named after the uh, the owner of uh, Video Archives where Tarantino memorably worked, so it's like a fun little nod to him. Um, and it's also uh, where Roger Avery worked as well, who did um, work on the on the screenplay here as well, and would obviously go on to not have as much success as uh, Tarantino as he would go on to do uh, Killing Zoe and um, Rules of Attraction. But um, a really great director who just really never got his never got his due. So, um, but yeah, with this this story, I mean, obviously the fact that he's, he's there opening by and he's, we have the wonderful heroin montage, which back when it was released, I mean, oh my god. They were up <laughs> in arms about that. It's like, we're showing people shooting up heroin to surf music. And just um, going... I don't know if it's a good idea if you're going to do this all-important job for your boss to turn up strung out on heroin. <laughs> I don't think any of it was supposed to be um, good, right? But it kind of sol solidifies that Vincent is really not too smart of a person, and his doom not, was kind of he? inevitable. Yeah, it's this thing with Tarantino. I mean, most people make you know 
films about professionals and Tarantino just like makes films about idiots. <laughs> and I mean, Vincent is a extreme idiot because the whole time, right from the beginning, they're like, I'm just taking her out on a, to a dinner. Yeah. It's not a date. It's just a dinner. And as you see this conversation and this exchange, and by the end of that dinner, you kind of really feel like during the dinner, he's really trying to keep as cool and mm. um, not be too involved and kind of keep his distance. But then as you get to the whole part as they get back from this diner and this whole thing where he's in the bathroom and he's talking to and he's talking to himself like, keep your cool type of thing <laughs> and he's kind of he's convincing himself that to not be involved and he comes out and he's like oh, i'm just gonna leave and then and then when he comes out he realizes you know obviously what's happened and and it, it, it's just it's just like at that point you know that oh vincent is is he he likes mia um, yeah. i guess at least a little <laughs> Well, and, I mean, with the character of, of Mir, though, I mean, t- hearing Mifem is just, like, so unbelievably cool. I mean, just from, like, her lips over the microphone introduction, how she's... I mean, she's got eyes on Vincent right from the moment he walks in the door. It's like, who's this cool cat who's just rolled into town with his bolo tie and questionable Euro trash haircut? Um, and she's like, has this, like, instant sort of connection to him. And she's not, like other like gangsters moles he's like very much in control of her own destiny um she's but her current lot in life is as master as well as his wife um prior to this i mean she obviously was a had a pilot where she was in fox force five um five because there's one two three four five (laughs) that's one of my favorite lines of them um and yeah they're just going out to dinner and they're going to this like kitsch sort of restaurant um, called Jack Rabbit Slims, which despite a number of places claiming to be the Jack Rabbit Slims, it's actually a studio set, but boy, does that look like a cool restaurant. <laughs> and I love, I love how, you know, the conversation we have about food never stops, right? And once you get into the diner, it's a perfect situation for this. And he doesn't talk about the food so much as he talks about the five dollar milkshake <laughs> how a five dollar milkshake would taste <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah and it's and it's the conversation is like broken up into like you know just little bits of pop culture yeah. this this whole conversation they're having you know he wants to know the truth behind whether Marseille's wife killed someone over giving her a foot massage and he's like knows he can obviously ask her, but at the same time they're sort of dancing around the issue. Um, and she's all the while being like charmed by his sort of like outlaw attitude, the fact he rolls cigarettes, and um, they have like this flirtatious little banter where it's uh, she calls him like cowboy, and even like the moments where he's like um, this, the whole scene is just full of these w- wonderful little quips and stuff, such as like you know when she comes back from the bathroom and finds her food's already there, or the fact that um, they're criticizing the waiter and he impresses her with the fact that um, she mistook the, the the waitress for being um, for being Mimi, I think it's Marilyn Monroe when it's Mar- actually Mar- Mar- Marilyn Monroe, yeah, yeah, and it's actually Mimi Van Ross that um, that it was, and it's like oh, pretty smart. It's like yeah, my moments, and I think I've used that quote numerous times in real life, like so many moments of this film. I think it's up there with Fight Club for my most borrowed from film when I tried to be smart in public. <laughs> but 
But yeah, I mean, I still know, have no idea. Is five dollars expensive? I can never work this out, or not if this is an extravagant amount to pay for a milkshake. Well, I mean, in today's standard, no. But <laughs> I mean, back in you know the nineteen nineties, yes, I would assume. <laughs> and it's also from the fact that Marcia, Mar Mia is um, established as a as a cokehead. So it makes perfect sense that when she uh, she discovers uh, what Vincent's been hiding in his uh, pocket, which is heroin, which a lot of people made the mistake of the fact that they're saying that, oh, yeah, it's good. She makes you can't snort heroin, but you can actually snort heroin. It's just a more traditional way of taking it is by uh, intravenously. So by using a syringe, but you can obviously snort heroin as any good drugs education class will tell you. <laughs> So um, yeah, she has the has the overdose, which of course is not the best thing for you to like kill your boss's wife, um, even if it was inadvertently. <laughs> <laughs> which obviously lead, again is it's this this just this quest. He just wants to take her out to dinner and go home and just just be done with the situation. He's got his answers over the foot massage, as Mia herself says. It's like, does it sound like a reasonable thing for? <laughs> for my husband to kill someone because he gave me a foot massage so the fact that he's now into this conversation and he ropes his drug dealer into the whole situation as well which there's a wonderful cutaway where he's like on the on the phone and you just hear like Vincent like crashing through his yard and they we follow him with like the handheld cam uh, we follow uh, Vincent of um Paul Lance's wife, uh, outplayed by a plum with by uh, Rosanna Arquette, and we just see Vincent dragging her out of the car and then just like dropping her on the lawn, which just still makes me laugh now. So, <laughs> oh, that scene was just ridiculous. You know, it's just it's just all kinds of craziness, and then you have this whole moment, and I think that that part was where the camera almost feels like it's fixed, and it just shifts from one side of the room to the next as you're looking at the the drug dealer and the wife talking as he's looking for this guide <laughs> this handbook on how to give the um injection yeah and the adrenaline shot yeah and then you turn back around and then you see what's going on in the living room and it's just the camera's frantically going back and forth a few times <laughs> and i'm just thinking <laughs> people complained about you know found footage and this almost feels like found footage type of style where <laughs> It was so it was so like jerky in that moment, yeah. but it really reflected um, the panic of the oh, characters yeah. in that moment too. Yeah, it totally captures it because of the whole time that we were like on the the fixed camera, it's like everyone's in control of the situation. Everyone's like, as soon as like the shit hits the fan, then we're on the hand cam, and it's it makes sense that we're like going back and forth this chaotic situation. I mean, Lance's house is is just full of garbage anyway, so the fact he's trying to find this medical book of how to give a an adrenaline shot and then they still have time to to argue over who's going to give the shot before coming to like the uh, the reasonable you know meeting point of like <laughs> if i have a chick who's od and bring it to your house then i'll give her the shot <laughs> i don't know where he moments from this film uh, when she says uh, don't be a square but draws a rectangle don't understand that. I know. <laughs> we had that. We had the same conversation when we were watching this, and um, obviously, my husband has seen this a lot more than I have, and he's a big fan of the movie. So yeah. that's something that he brought up, and he's like, "Well, I don't understand why they do that." 
And, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just, they just drew it. Maybe the, the TVs used to be square and now they're rectangle. I don't know. Yeah, because we stretched the image out and now it looks like a rectangle. Yeah. It was a square when they shot it. But, but um, it's, I think, yeah, I love, I really love this, this story. I think it's just so madcap. Um, and the the chemistry between you know Uma Thurman and John Travolta is just so great. The fact that you know they have the memorable dance sequence, which I think how many people have copied that for their weddings. <laughs> I think I think you know what Pulp Fiction is good in in a lot of different ways, and it really shows Tarantino's craft as a scriptwriter and even as a director. To capture all these different things and his creativity in creating these, you know, the big kahuna burgers and then yeah. you have, you know, the red apple cigarettes and all that comes back into play from, you know, and then, but I think what really works here is really the uniqueness of that fragmented storyline and these really charming sort of characters, a bit ridiculous in their own way and and unexpected also i mean even when you go to you know samuel l jackson's character who suddenly he has this revelation of of a different interpretation of this ezekiel quote (laughs) and then he turns it around he's like okay i don't want to do this anymore type of deal right and that explains in the future of why vincent is in that bathroom getting shot by himself where probably if he was with Jules, that wouldn't have happened because he would be like, idiot, don't leave your gun in the kitchen table, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, this brings us into our final story where we follow uh, Vincent and Jules uh, with the surviving member of the, the trio. They got the briefcase and they take Marvin with them for whatever reason. I don't never understood why, but um, soon Marvin meets the same fate as his friends when... Uh, Vincent accidentally shoots him in the face because Vincent, as we've established already, is an idiot. <laughs> um, and they're having this whole sort of before. I mean, before then, we have like the guy like come out of the bathroom and shoot at both uh, Vincent and Jules, but somehow misses them. And it poses this question of like, you know, was this fate? Is this the you know the warning that they need to go on a different path in life? Which obviously becomes. Jules's main sort of takeaway from this where Vincent's like you know it was just a complete fluke um there's no there is nothing to do with fate um or anything else and almost to like just so further prove this point he as I say shoots Marvin in the face which I remember laughing so loud the first time I saw that because my what sense <laughs> it, it, of humor. Is, it is hilarious though because you're looking at it and you're looking at the scene and he's pointing the gun at him and you're like this is gonna happen it's definitely gonna happen it's just a matter of when it's, it's just like, a matter of when. And and then when it happens, you're just like, oh my goodness, it happened. And then you have this kind of like, oh my goodness. <laughs> but when we go back to the front seat and it's like, just Jules and Vincent, it's like, what happened? He's like, oh man, I shot <laughs> Marvin in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously takes us on to Jimmy, played by Tarantino in his longest cameo to, to date. Um, here he plays the guys that... He's friends with Jules, and uh, Jules sees his house as being the best place to sort of hide out, because, let's face it, their car looks like an abattoir at this point. They're both covered <laughs> in blood in broad daylight. Um, and we are also introduced to this scene to Harvey Keitel as Mr. Wolf. Yes. Oh, man. 
But, you know, I think that Mr. Wolf is such a fascinating character. He might have only been there for, what, like, five minutes or something? But, yeah. oh, my God, that cameo was so was so great. And then the whole exchange with Tarantino about about the whole, did you see the sign on my lawn or whatever? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, then, and then it was like, that's because it's not there. <laughs> you know why? Because it's not my business. <laughs> Yeah, there's even, I mean, there's the use of the, the N-word. I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, we're here, like, as, you know, film discussion professionals here. Probably not the best speakers of English if I'm anything to go off. But, um, yeah, it's so hard to say the, to use the N-word in, in a professional context. And Tia Tarantino uses it with a plum, really. And it got a lot of raised sort of eyebrows, the fact that it's used so literally. And, there were many sort of different sides to it. I mean, the fact that Tarantino grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods, so he, all his fr- friends were sort of like black, and it just became very immersed in black culture. And you have people like Samuel Jackson and Pam Gray who like saw it, um, his use of the, the word as not as a disparaging remark, but obviously being someone who's sort of culturally pleasant, whereas Spike Lee. Uh, decided to take it that Tarantino was trying to make himself an honorary black man, uh, which sorted a, a brief rivalry between the two, with Tarantino firing back. It's like, well, when's the last time anyone saw a Spike Lee movie? Um, so, yeah, the, I think they've, you know, they got over it now that they've both <laughs> gone on to have these big careers and stuff. But uh, certainly at the time, Tarantino's use of the, the N-word, most like the the amount of cursing in this film. I mean, it held the Guinness World Record for the longest time for the most expletives used in one film. Um, I think it was built and was beaten by South Park um, in their episode where they just focus on the word shit. Um, <laughs> in a 30-minute episode, uh, they just constantly like use it and they got a little counter at the bottom that totals every time it t- it's used. So with the uh, general takeaway being that the more you curse and use, the more it just becomes like background noise in the end, so <laughs> it loses all its power. But no, uh, Mr. Wolf, who I see played by um, Harvey Keitel, who I wish would be in more Tarantino movies. I miss Harvey Keitel and his presence. <laughs> but um, he would actually reprise this role for a series of insurance adverts here in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah, he just turns up as Mr. Wolf. He's there fixing people's problems. And Kevin Bacon's also hawking mobile networks over here in the UK as well, so... It used to be the thing you went off to, like, Japan to, like, do Suntory whiskey commercials and, and things to, like, make a little extra money, and now it seems you just come over to the UK and hawk insurance and mobile contracts. <laughs> like, right now, right? Like, right now. Yeah, Kevin Bacon's, like, got a whole... He's been doing this for several years now. Okay, okay. Um, okay. And they've only just read. I think in the last couple of years they stopped doing the Harvey Cartel ones, but he's still so cool in that role. And the fact that he's he comes into this situation where everything's like absolute chaos, and he just knows instantly what to do. He knows how to calm us down, what they're going to do, and um, just really sort of takes control of the situation. And you kind of understand why Jules is so relieved when Marcel sends says that he's sending the cavalry, he's sending Mr. Wolf, and he's sort of like, oh, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> he's just so relieved, and then you see how Mr. Wolf works, and you're just like, you're just like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> um, but um, 
Yeah, this is. It's funny how we go from like serious sort of like the gangster movie to just like almost broad comedy. Um, by the end of this 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 movie, I mean, this is kind of like a crime romp, right? Like. It, it, it still has that kind of crime type of element to it where a lot of it is 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 set in the backdrop of you know gangsters and and I don't know th- <laughs> robberies and yeah. all kinds of things like that um, people cheating their way out of um, and and in every single way they, they all are connected to Wallace in one way or another and but I mean, at the end of the day, it's just it's just a romp because you know, you have idiots and you have <laughs> you know single-minded uh, people and you have all these <laughs> all these ridiculous things that are happening in the process, accidents that happen, um, things going wrong, and and every single segment is just kind of like this ride uh, of how many things can go wrong to one person <laughs> where you just you have to try and pull yourself out of this by calling in the cavalry or or whatever right yeah <laughs> um it's an interesting the deleted scene for this uh, when they turn up to monster mike's um wrecking yard where they get rid of the car uh monster mike was originally be played by um dick miller who I'm not sure if it's a name that uh, leaps out at yourself, but he played um, Mr. Finkelman in the Gremlins movies. He's in okay. a bunch. He's in like pretty much all the Joe Dante movies. He plays like um, like support odd supporting characters. He's even like in Inner Space. He plays the taxi driver, which most people don't think realize he was in. Um, but yeah, Dick Miller's like a the ultimate character actor and sadly his scenes were cut but thankfully if you get the DVD you can watch his the deleted scenes but he has a really great exchange with um, Mr. Wolf oh. where they're just basically like going about and sort of like he's fully aware there's a body in the car that they get rid of so this isn't the first time that um, Mr. Wolf has used his his, his wrecking yard um, and he also explains how Jules and Vincent got their wonderful get up so uh, they look like, as they say, they look like they're going to a volleyball game. <laughs> it's just hilarious because you're watching these two dudes at the beginning of the show and of the movie, which is just they're in these these suits, right? Serious, yeah. uh, serious guys who are pretty much hitmen. <laughs> and you just, and then you know, you flip around and you see these guys walk walk around in these. <laughs> Acting all cool and stuff in their <laughs> in their volleyball or whatever getup, yeah. <laughs> in these short shorts and the, the and this t shirt, these white t shirts, and they're just walking around. They look like they're dressed in clothes that you buy at the airport. <laughs> no one else like, sells really clothes that bad, right? They're yeah. just missing that like floral button up, and then you do, you do Hawaiian shirt, and it look like they were tourists. Mm. Um. And it's it's randomly just like the fact that these two characters going for breakfast, they've had one hell of a morning um, and they're now going for breakfast that they find themselves caught in the middle of a stick-up, which we obviously saw being carried out at the beginning with uh, Pumpkin and and Honey Bunny as we find ourselves looped back back where the story starts. And we're now seeing these characters from a completely different angle, which is really interesting to see. Um, as before, they were like the enduring couple, but now they're like just the pure aggressors. We get to see them how they how they uh, work, and we obviously get the inclusion of the Tarantino favorite trade mark, the Mexican standoff, 
Mm. Only this one ends better than uh, Reservoir Dogs did. <laughs> yeah. Jules, the I think only Samuel Jackson's the only man who can talk his way out of a Mexican standoff. <laughs> At least a, according to this script, right? <laughs> I mean, he's like, I think in real life, Samuel Jackson's so cool. I think he could pull it off. It's all like, oh, when he's like, just tells him like, look at his uh, wallet, and he's so like, oh, which one is it? It's like the one with bad motherfucker on it. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many like things that he says. You think he's just taunting him, but no, he's just saying what his wallet says. In a weird way, it's like the perfect ending to this this film. It um, is because in the end, it almost feels like nothing's happened, right? While there's a lot that's happened, but the movie starts at one point where there's a stick up, and then at the end, nothing really happens because they still get to get the money that they want, and the two get to leave, right? Yeah. But we do know that at the end of everything, that in the middle, we also have the actual ending of where what happens to, you know, Vincent and, and all that stuff. But in in some ways, this is a pretty, you know, happy ending in that sense. We know that it's not happy, but, at the, but then somehow there's this sense of relief when they, oh, they just casually walk out of the diner after, after, after witnessing the stick up, you know. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, as you said, it's just the fact they walk off, they go off to deliver the boss his, his briefcase, and just the fact they, they look around themselves and sort of shrug and just put their guns down <laughs> their shorts. And, and as we just play on the on the surf music, and we realize, you know, they're off to see a scene that we saw as like the second shot of the second story of the film, and it's just, oh, it's great. I think even now, just the structure of this film is just really. I still like it. Still like it, even though I'm not the biggest uh, fan of the Gold Watch story. Mm. Um, it's weird. It's still like I feel that part of me wants to cut it out, but at the same time, I feel that I miss it if it it did because it's got so many those like those moments within it. Like once it gets going, that um, I would really miss miss being in the film. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it's it's hard to say, right? In one way, I would want it to be gone just because I feel like it kind of lengthens the movie for no pro- no real reason. Yeah. But at the same time, if you took it out, then um, the power of the scene when they walk into the bar um, as Wallace is talking to uh, Butch or the power of that scene of having that, uh, of showing uh, Wallace, who Marcellus Wallace looks like, and that whole standoff moment. Yeah. Um, all those things get taken away, and it takes away from the movie because those are also characters that have a bit of charm to it. I mean, obviously, um, e- even even when uh, Butch is talking to his girlfriend, you, you have that feeling that it is a bit annoying, but at the same time, there is a certain... Uh, it it kind of pads up that character also, and and Bruce Willis Bruce Willis's Butch is very charming in some ways. Like there's a lot, not maybe charming, but like more like he's it's a very dynamic character to to kind of realize who he is, especially when it's it's about uh, you know a father and son story in a sense in a very indirect way where it's about the possession of this gold watch that he he values a lot and 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 kind of. And, and it builds that story, which which obviously leads to the end. So everything kind of ties together. And while that segment feels the less the least um, immersive to watch, it still has a lot of value to it. Yeah, 
definitely so. Um, and I think if we didn't have it, we would also not. Ultimately, the you know, the the twist of fate that obviously sends since our two uh, hitmen off in different directions in their life I don't think we would have obviously seen the payoff of both of them had uh, continued on that uh, mm. on the track that they were going so I think it it, it plays into so many different sort of elements uh, even though it's feels like a weird tonal shift just because we're these two we were completely new characters uh, whereas the other stories we've got this familiarity of these characters we've already been introduced to um, like when we look at um Mira and Vincent's uh, dinner date. We've already been introduced to Vincent, so we've got that that connecting thread there. But when yeah. it comes to Butch, it's sort of like, well, where do you fit into this story, really? It's, um, but um, yeah, it's. I even now, I mean, as I said, I think because this film, I've seen this film so many times, and the fact it's so parody to hell. I think this is the along with Reservoir Dogs is like one of the Tarantino movies I re return to less now. Which is going to make it really interesting when we go into our next uh, film, Jackie Brown, because that's obviously the film that I've seen the least out of the Tarantino filmography. I think that and uh, Django Unchained are the two that I've, I've watched the least. So I'm really interested to go back to it with like fresh eyes and see how it plays. So, mm. so this obviously brings us to the end of uh, tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to listen to us. Uh, you can follow us at movies and tea podcast at wordpress.com. And, uh, you know, whenever you happen to listen to us, let me lose a review. Let us know what you think of the show. It's it always appreciated and helps raise the profile of the show. But, um, Kim, do you want to say where we're going to next? Well, you kind of just mentioned it before, but we're going to uh, the next movie is uh, 1997's uh, Jackie Brown. Starring the legendary Pam McGrath. Um, so that's going to be exciting for that fact alone. Uh, we obviously have Robert Forrester. We've got uh, Michael Keaton. Um, in a, Tarantino's only adaptation, rather than working from an original script, as he adapts uh, Elmer Leonard's uh, Rum, Rum Punch. Um to uh, give us Jackie Brown but we'll obviously talk about that more on our next episode but uh, to them thank you for listening thanks to my co-host Kim and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Jackie Brown Good night.